0: BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. That's try better, H E L P, and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for bore you to sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Fields, Factories and Workshops. It is a story of globalisation and industry in the early 1900s. It was written by Peter Kropotkin and published in 1913. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I would like to say thank you to the lovely listeners who reached out this week to send thank you, Shah H for your kind review on CastBox. Joni Touche and also Siobhan Simmons. Thank you for your lovely messages on Instagram. And D733, thank you for your review on iTunes. It means a great deal to hear from everyone, and I'm so glad that I'm able to help all of you get a good night's rest. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a 5-star review in iTunes or your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. It would also be awesome if you were able to share the podcast with someone you know who may also need a good night's sleep. If you would like, you can say hello to me at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. You can also say hello on Instagram or Twitter at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Fields, Factories, and Workshops by P. Kropotkin 1913 Fourteen years have passed since the first edition of this book was published, and in revising it for this new edition... I found at my disposal an immense mass of new materials, statistical and descriptive, and a great number of new works dealing with the different subjects that are treated in this book. I have thus had an excellent opportunity to verify how far the provisions that I had formulated when I first wrote this book have been confirmed by the subsequent economical evolution of the different nations. This verification permits me to affirm that the economical tendencies that I had ventured to foreshadow then have only become more and more definite since. Everywhere, we see the same decentralization of industries going on, new nations continually entering the ranks of those which manufacture for the world market. Each of these newcomers endeavors to develop and succeeds in developing on its own territory, the principal industries, and thus frees itself from being exploited by other nations, more advanced in their technical evolution. All nations have made a remarkable progress in this direction, as will be seen from the new data that are given in this book. On the other hand, one sees, with all the great industrial nations, the growing tendency and need of developing at home a more intensive agricultural productivity, either by improving the now existing methods of extensive agriculture, by means of small holdings, inner colonisation, Agricultural education and cooperative work, or by introducing different new branches of intensive agriculture. The country is especially offering us at this moment a most instructive example of a movement in the said direction, and this movement will certainly result not only in a much-needed increase of the productive forces of the nation, which will contribute to free it from the international speculators in food produce, but also in awakening in the nation a fuller appreciation of the immense value of its soil, the desire of repairing the error, that has been committed in leaving it in the hands of great landowners and of those who find it now more advantageous to rent the land to be turned into shooting preserves. The different steps that are being taken now for raising English agriculture and for obtaining from the land a much greater amount of produce, are briefly indicated in Chapter 5. It is especially in revising the chapters, dealing with the small industries, that I had to incorporate the results of a great number of new researchers. In so doing, I was enabled to show that the growth of an infinite variety of small enterprises by the side of the very great centralised concerns is not showing any signs of abatement. On the contrary, the distribution of electrical motive power has given them a new impulse. In those places where water power was utilised for distributing electric power in the villages, and in those cities where the machinery used for producing electric light during the night hours was utilised for supplying motive power during the day, the small industries are taking a new development. In this domain, I am enabled to add to the present edition the interesting results of a work about the small industries in the united kingdom that i made in 1900 such a work was only possible when the british factory inspectors had published in 1898 in virtue of the factories act of 1895 the first reports from which I could determine the hitherto unknown numerical relations between the great and the small industries in the United Kingdom. Until then, no figures whatever as regards the distribution of operatives in the large and small factories and workshops of Great Britain were available, so that when economists spoke of the unavoidable death of the small industries, they merely expressed hypotheses based upon a limited number of observations, which were chiefly made upon part of the textile industry. Only after Mr. Whittlegegg had published the first figures from which reliable conclusions could be drawn, was it possible to see how little such wide-reaching conclusions were confirmed by realities? In this country, as everywhere, the small industries continue to exist, and new ones continue to appear as a necessary growth. ...in many important branches of national production... ...by the side of the very great factories... ...and huge centralised works. So I add to the chapter on small industries... ...a summary of the work that I had published... ...in the 19th century upon this subject. As regards France... The most interesting observations made by M. Arduin Dumazet, during his many years' travels all over the country give me the possibility of showing the remarkable development of rural industries and the advantages which were taken from them for recent developments in agriculture and horticulture and besides the publication of the statistical results of the French Industrial Census of 1896, permits me to give now, for France, most remarkable numerical data, showing the real relative importance of the great and of the small industries. And finally... The recent publication of the results of the Third Industrial Census, made in Germany in 1907, gives me the data for showing how the German small industries have been keeping their ground for the last 25 years, a subject which I could touch only in a general way in the first editions The result of this census, compared with the two preceding ones, as also some of the conclusions arrived at by competent German writers, are indicated in the appendix, so also the results arrived at in Switzerland concerning its home industries. As to the need generally felt at this moment, of an education which would combine a wide scientific instruction with a sound knowledge of manual work, a question which I treat in the last chapter. It can be said that this cause has already been won in this country during the last 20 years. The principle is generally recognized by this time, although most nations, impoverished as they are by their armaments, are much too slow in applying the principle in life. Chapter 1. The Decentralization of Industries Who does not remember the remarkable chapter by which Adam Smith opens his inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Even those of our contemporary economists, who seldom revert to the works of the father of political economy, and often forget the ideas which inspired them, know that chapter, almost by heart, so often has it been copied and recopied since. It has become an article of faith and the economical history of the century which has elapsed since Adam Smith wrote has been, so to speak, an actual commentary upon it. Division of labor was its watchword. And the division and subdivision, the permanent subdivision, of functions has been pushed so far as to divide humanity into castes which are almost as firmly established as those of old India. We have first the broad division into producers and consumers little-consuming producers on the one hand, little-producing consumers on the other hand. Then, amidst the former, a series of further subdivisions, the manual worker and the intellectual worker, sharply separated from one another to the detriment of both, the agricultural labourers, and the workers in the manufacture, and, amidst the mass of the latter, numberless subdivisions again, so minute indeed, that the modern ideal of a workman seems to be a man or a woman, or even a girl or a boy, without the knowledge of any handicraft, without any conception whatever of the industry he or she is employed in, who is only capable of making day-long and for a whole life the same infinitesimal part of something, who from the age of 13 to that of 60 pushes, the coal cart at a given spot of the mine, or makes the spring of a penknife, or the eighteenth part of a pen. Mere servants to some machine of a given description, mere flesh and bone, parts of some immense machinery, having no idea how and why the machinery performs its rhythmical movements. Skilled artisanship is being swept away as a survival ...of a past condemned to disappear. The artist who formerly found... aesthetic enjoyment in the work of his hands... ...is substituted by the human slave... ...of an iron slave. Nay, even the agricultural labourer... ...who formerly used to find a relief... ...from the hardships of his life... ...in the home of his ancestors the future home of his children. In his love of the field, and in a keen intercourse with nature, even he has been doomed to disappear for the sake of division of labor. He is an anachronism, we are told. He must be substituted in a bonanza farm by an occasional servant hired for the summer and discharged as the autumn comes, a tramp who will never again see the field he has harvested once in his life, an affair of a few years, the economists say, to reform agriculture in accordance with the true principles of division, of labor, and modern industrial organization. Dazzled with the results obtained by a century of marvellous inventions, especially in England, our economists and political men went still farther in their dreams of division of labour. They proclaimed the necessity of dividing the whole of humanity into national workshops, having each of them its own speciality, We were taught, for instance, that Hungary and Russia are predestined by nature to grow corn in order to feed the manufacturing countries, that Britain had to provide the world market with cottons, iron goods and coal, Belgium with woolen cloth and so on. Nay, within each nation... Each region had to have its own speciality, so it has been for some time since, so it ought to remain. Fortunes have been made in this way, and will continue to be made in the same way. It being proclaimed that the wealth of nations is measured by the amount of profits made by the few and that the largest profits are made by means of a specialization of labor, the question was not conceived to exist as to whether human beings would always submit to such a specialization, whether nations could be specialized like isolated workmen. The theory was good for today. Why should we care for tomorrow? tomorrow might bring its own theory. And so it did. The narrow conception of life, which consisted in thinking that profits are the only leading motive of human society, and the stubborn view which supposes that what has existed yesterday would last forever, proved in discordance with the tendencies of human life and life took another direction. Nobody will deny the high pitch of production which may be attained by specialization, but precisely in proportion as the work required from the individual in modern production becomes simpler and simpler to be learned, and therefore also more monotonous and wearisome, the requirements of the individual for varying his work, for exercising all his capacities, become more and more prominent. Humanity perceives that there is no advantage for the community in riveting a human being for all his life to a given spot. In a workshop, or a mine. No gain in depriving him of such work, as would bring him into free intercourse with nature, make of him a conscious part of the grand whole, a partner in the highest enjoyments of science and art, of free work and creation. Nations, too, refuse to be specialised, each nation is a compound aggregate of tastes and inclinations, of words and resources, of capacities and inventive powers. The territory occupied by each nation is in its turn a most varied texture of soils and climates, of hills and valleys, of slopes leading to a still greater variety of territories and races. Variety is the distinctive feature both of the territory and its inhabitants, and that variety implies a variety of occupations. Agriculture calls manufactures into existence, and manufactures support agriculture. Both are inseparable and the combination, the integration of both brings about the grandest result. In proportion, as technical knowledge becomes everybody's virtual domain, in proportion, as it becomes international, and can be concealed no longer, each nation acquires the possibility of applying the whole variety of her energies to the whole variety of industrial and agricultural pursuits. Knowledge ignores artificial political boundaries, so also do the industries, and the present tendency of humanity is to have the greatest possible variety of industries gathered in each country, in each separate region, side, by side with agriculture. The needs of human agglomerations correspond thus to the needs of the individual, and while a temporary division of functions remains the surest guarantee of success in each separate undertaking, the permanent division is doomed to disappear and to be substituted by a variety of pursuits intellectual, industrial, and agricultural, corresponding to the different capacities of the individual, as well as to the variety of capacities within every human aggregate. When we thus revert from the scholastics of our textbooks and examine human life as a whole, we soon discover that, while all the benefits of a temporary division of labour must be maintained, it is high time to claim those of the integration of labour. Political economy has hitherto insisted chiefly upon division. We proclaim integration, and we maintain that the ideal of society, that is, the state towards which society is already marching, is a society of integrated, combined labor, a society where each individual is a producer of both manual and intellectual work, where each able-bodied human being is a worker, and where each worker works both in the field and the industrial workshop, where every aggregation of individuals large enough to dispose of a certain variety of natural resources. It may be a nation, or rather a region, produces and itself consumes most of its own agricultural and manufactured produce. Of course, as long as society remains organized so as to permit the owners of the land and capital to appropriate for themselves under the protection of the state and historical rights, this yearly surplus of human production, no such change can be thoroughly accomplished, but the present industrial system, based upon a permanent specialization of functions, already bears in itself the germs of its proper ruin. The industrial crises, which grows more acute and protracted, and are rendered still worse and still more acute by the armaments and wars implied by the present system, are rendering its maintenance more and more difficult. Moreover, the workers plainly manifest their intention to support no longer patiently the misery occasioned by each crisis. And each crisis accelerates the day when the present institutions of individual property and production will be shaken to their foundations with such internal struggles as will depend upon the more or less good sense of the now privileged classes. But we maintain also that any socialist attempt at remodeling the present relations between capital and labor will be a failure if it does not take into account the above tendencies towards integration. These tendencies have not yet received, in our opinion, due attention from the different socialist schools. But they must. A reorganized society will have to abandon the fallacy of nations specialized for the production of either agricultural or manufactured produce. It will have to rely on itself for the production of food and many, if not most, of the raw materials. It must find the best means of combining agriculture with manufacture, the work in the field with a decentralized industry, and it will have to provide for integrated education, which education alone, by teaching both science and handicraft from earliest childhood, can give to society the men and women it really needs. Each nation, her own agriculturist and manufacturer, each individual working in the field and in some industrial art, each individual combining scientific knowledge with the knowledge of a handicraft, such is, we affirm, the present tendency of civilized nations. The prodigious growth of industries in Great Britain and the simultaneous development of the international traffic which now permits the transport of raw materials and articles of food on a gigantic scale, have created the impression that a few nations of West Europe were destined to become the manufacturers of the world. They need only, it was argued, to supply the market with manufactured goods. And they will draw from all over the surface of the earth the foods they cannot grow themselves, as well as the raw materials they need for their manufactures. The steadily increasing speed of transoceanic communications and the steadily increasing facilities of shipping have contributed to enforce the above impression. If we take the enthusiastic pictures of international traffic, drawn in such a masterly way by Newman Spallart, the statistician and almost the poet of the world trade, we are inclined indeed to fall into ecstasy before the results achieved. Why shall we grow corn, rear oxen and sheep, and cultivate orchids, Go through the painful work of the labourer and the farmer, and anxiously watch the sky in fear of a bad crop. When we can get, with much less pain, mountains of corn from India, America, Hungary, or Russia, meat from New Zealand, vegetables from the Azores, apples from Canada, grapes from Malaga, and so on exclaim the West Europeans. Already now, they say, our food consists, even in modest households, of produce gathered from all over the globe. Our cloth is made out of fibres grown and wool sheared in all parts of the world. The prairies of America and Australia, the mountains and steppes of Asia, the frozen wildernesses of the Arctic regions, the deserts of Africa, and the depths of the oceans. The tropics and the lands of the midnight sun are our tributaries. All races of men contribute their share in supplying us with our staple food and luxuries, with plain clothing and fancy dress. While we are sending them in exchange the produce of our higher intelligence, our technical knowledge, our powerful industrial and commercial organising capacities, it is not a grand sight this busy and intricate exchange of produce all over the earth, which has suddenly grown up within a few years. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you are feeling drowsy, and I hope you enjoyed the story. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of Boy to Sleep. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.